The most recent poll of Americans' satisfaction with service they get from the federal government, it's up. But with a score of about 66 out of 100, the American Customer Satisfaction Index is still below pre-pandemic levels. My next guest is the former Index Research Director, now a professor at Michigan State, Forrest Morgeson joins me now. Forrest, good to have you back. Nice to be here. Thank you. So what do we make of this, the fact that it rose 4.6%? It's up. It's not up at the peak of about 2018 or 19 was when the Satisfaction Index reached its most recent peak. It was much better back in the early aughts, you might say. So what's going on here? Well, I mean, I think some of it is a natural rebound. Obviously, the government had a difficult time providing services to citizens during the pandemic and the years after that. And I think, you know, very much like the private sector, you saw some negative customer experiences with the government because of that, because of just the load on the system and the different demands that citizens had of the government. I think as that has waned a little bit, I think it's starting to go back to its more normal levels. The government still remains below its pre-COVID levels, as you mentioned, but it's definitely trending in the right direction back to a more normal level. Because if you look at the trend of the yearly scores from 99, it looks like if you used a French curve to kind of even it all out, it's a very slight downward trend in the past 24, 25 years or so, but not really a crash but it's trending slightly down on average. So it doesn't seem like yearly events drive it that much. I mean, they do drive it that much, but there's a slow decline over 20 years. Yeah, I mean, big shocks are going to drive any index like this down where you have, you know, really dramatic events that change the way services can be provided and customers or citizens can experience those services. We have seen that sort of slight gradual decline that's probably due to some extent with the government remaining relatively static in how it's delivering its services and huge sea changes in how the private sector is delivering its services. So comparatively speaking, the government's still running on a 1.0 model in a lot of ways, whereas the private sector is 2.0. And I hate to tiptoe into this, what amounts to a grid of third rails. You can get electrocuted very easily. But does the political situation have anything to do with the customer satisfaction index? People hate this president. They hate that president. Half the country hates whoever's in office at a given moment. But does that affect the index? That's a great question. And that's something that we've certainly looked at. And there does tend to be in this data what we can call a president in power effect, where we're not measuring politics here. We're measuring the quality of services delivered by the federal government, just like we do in the private sector. Nevertheless, when you've got a change in presidential administration and therefore a change in something like 35% of the American people love versus hate, you know, the other 30% are neutral, you do see some predictable movement there. In other words, when one party's president takes office, having been out of power, they tend to get a little bit more satisfied with what they're experiencing. And we would expect this, right? We wouldn't want it to be entirely driven by this. But of course, there is that perception that who's running the government is going to provide me the services as I want them to, whether that's, you know, broad policy-based issues like how I'm going to get taxed and how I'm going to do those sorts of things. So yeah, we do see some of that. All right. And just by point of reference, the customer satisfaction index with the federal government fluctuates. The lowest point in recent years was the index was 63.9. The highest was 72.3 back in 06. So there's a range there, 64 to 72, let's say. How does that compare with the best of industry and the worst? 
Well, you know, it compares favorably to the worst of industry. Unfortunately, the worst of industry are your cable television companies, your internet service providers, industries that we don't think of as being particularly strong. The federal government does score above those kinds of industries. Unfortunately, it's well below, in some cases, 20 points or more, the best of the private sector in terms of those companies that are offering services and products that we really, really love. Our Amazons, our Googles, our Apple, um, those kinds of companies tend to score in the mid to even upper 80s over time. And so, you know, there's quite a gap there between the best of the private sector and, and what we're getting from federal government. We're speaking with Forrest Morgeson. He's a professor of marketing at Michigan State University and former research director of the American Customer Satisfaction Index. And looking at the department-by-department index scores for last year, I think Interior is always at the top of the list with a 75 index versus the average, again, of 66. And that's probably because of the National Park Service, which a lot of people avail online and have for many years. And at the bottom is, of course, Treasury. And we know how IRS agency itself admits it just couldn't answer the phones, you know, in the last tax filing season and so forth, paper built up, et cetera, et cetera. So what do we make of, like, say, an agriculture, which did really well right under interior and HUD, which the average person doesn't really deal with, is just above Treasury, pretty low. Yeah. I mean, most of the people that are going to HUD are doing it for some kind of paperwork for financial assistance for housing or something like that. And those processes, as we all know, generally are not particularly efficient, not particularly easy to complete, and therefore they're a burden for citizens and they get low scores. Agriculture, a lot of that is going to be, you know, in terms of the citizen facing role of that agency. A lot of that is going to be people that are simply receiving food stamps from the Department of Agriculture, and and that's a relatively, relatively low burden activity that has a benefit at the end of it. You know, you mentioned IRS, which is perennially our laggard in citizen satisfaction. Virtually every single year that we've been doing this, it comes in at the bottom. And you want to be fair, right? Obviously, I think most of us could agree that IRS could do a better job providing the services that they offer, at least picking up the phone, as you said. The reality is, though, is that they have a constrained budget and they have a mission that by its nature is not going to ever be particularly satisfying, right? Taxation and the taking of money from citizens is never going to be particularly satisfying. So the goal is to try to, in some cases, take what are inherently dissatisfying experiences and make them as efficient and satisfying as you possibly can. Because if you look at, you know, who interacts with government, in some ways, the federal government is the provider of last resort with the SNAP program at agriculture, unemployment insurance from labor, Social Security and disability payments, housing assistance, as you mentioned. So I wonder if the survey should be skewed in terms of the sample and get people that are maybe not as wealthy or at the poorer end of the socioeconomic scale who tend to be the ones most accessing government because all the wealthy, well-off people try to stay away as much as they can. That's an interesting point. The reality, though, is, of course, our broader goal at ACSI is to try to capture as much of the economic picture as we can. In terms of what government's offering, you know, that's going to cover the whole spectrum. The Postal Service all the way down to IRS, which virtually everyone has to interact with at some level. So we want to capture that as much as we can. You're right, though. I mean, there are different ways of defining who is really interacting with the government and how they're doing so. Do we count total number of people? Do we count, you know, in the private sector, we're really geared towards 
those companies that are bigger, right, that have more revenue. And so there's sort of a wealth dimension there. And we can't do something exactly the same in the federal government. But it's an interesting question. How do we consider these different groups of citizens that are interacting with the government? How do we accurately measure their experiences? And a detailed question on the index survey itself, Veterans Affairs is not listed and the Postal Service is not listed. We measure the Postal Service separately, and there's a pragmatic reason for doing that. First of all, we can compare it to FedEx and UPS and those kinds of things as a personal delivery company in the private sector. And so we do that separately. The other reason is, of course, if we include that in our federal government sample, everyone will say, yes, I've experienced the U.S. Postal Service, and we'll, we won't get any interviews anywhere else. So we want to try to keep it a little bit broader and keep it spread out a little bit more. So that's why you don't see that in there. The other, you know, you, you mentioned the Veterans Affairs. We simply allow respondents to tell us what they've interacted with from the federal government, and then our samples are driven by that. If we don't have enough sample, we won't include it. And so while you've got a lot of veterans, you know, going through the Veterans Health Administration, Veterans Affairs in general, we don't have a ton of respondents for that, and therefore we don't produce a score. And do any of the agencies ever react to the index operators? Do they ever do you hear back from them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, our, our data has been used a few times in congressional testimony about the performance of government in general here in the United States. We know that these agencies by law are mandated to go in and do this kind of research either on their own or hire someone outside through the GIPRA and the GPRMA updates uh, about a decade ago. They've got to go out and do this kind of research. So they look at either our data or data like ours to try to better understand how citizens perceive the job that they're doing, the work that that they're doing and how they can improve that. Forrest Morgison is a professor at Michigan State University, former research director to the American Customer Satisfaction Index. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. It's been great. And we'll post this interview and a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? 
And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about 
these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.